I want to ask you to turn to John this morning. We're going to step away from 1 Peter for two weeks. Next week, I'll be gone with a group of students to the Cross Conference in Louisville, Kentucky, and Phil is going to preach next week, and uh, looking forward to his message, and I look forward to listening to it online. This week, we're going to be, because it's Christmas week, we want to look specifically at, uh, at Christmas, and uh, this text in John chapter 1, we're going to analyze verses 14 through 18. And so, I want to read that text, make one more prayer, and launch right into the message. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness of Him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, because he was before me. And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Go with me in prayer. God, we pray that Your Spirit will instruct us this morning, that He will fill me and help me proclaim Your Word powerfully. And we pray, Lord, that You would transform us from one glory to the next as we behold Your Word. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So I grew up loving Christmas. It was a thrilling season uh, for me. I would count down the days of Christmas from my birthday going forward. And my birthday is November the 27th, if any of you are taking notes on that. But I would count, I would count the days, uh, literally. And I, the reason was I just loved Christmas because I, I loved getting out of school for Christmas. I loved spending time with my mom and my dad and my brothers during Christmas. I loved going, cutting down the Christmas tree at the local Christmas tree farm. I loved going to the Galleria and riding the carousel during Christmas. I loved picking out gifts for my family members during Christmas. I loved having dinner with uh, different family members and friends that we would do that week that was leading up to Christmas Day. I loved Christmas Eve. I remember Christmas Eve was the longest night of the year. I don't know if anybody can identify with that or not, but it, it involved a lot of sleeplessness, a lot of rolling over, a lot of switching ends of the bed, going to the bathroom innumerable times, I mean, counting sheep. I mean, it was, you know, I, I, and I would go, I would go to uh, the, the top of the stairs. I, I was, my room was on the second floor of our two-story house, and I would just sit at the top of the stairs and some of the gifts sometimes would not be wrapped they would be open and so it was all it, it took all the integrity that i could muster in my in my body you know not to go down the stairs but i would sit at the top of the stairs until daylight broke anticipating going down now one of the most memorable no the most memorable christmas day that i ever had was when i was 10 years old when I was 10 years old, I walked down the stairs after basically not sleeping all night 
and I looked down to the right as I got halfway down the staircase, and there against the fireplace was a bicycle. And it wasn't just any bicycle. It was an amazing bicycle. I was immediately in awe of this bicycle. It, it had pegs on the front and pegs on the back. It, it didn't have foot brakes. It had hand brakes. It, the, the, uh, the steering wheel could go around and around. Um, it, it, had, um, it, it had white mag wheels instead of spokes. I mean, it was a dirt bike, a trick bike, a freestyle bike all wrapped up in one. And I was completely amazed and exhilarated by this bike. I grabbed my clothes. I, I, uh, I took the bike outside and I started riding it immediately. And lo and behold, 10 minutes later, my best friend and next-door neighbor, Jeremy Tucker, comes out of his house. And you know what he has? He has a bicycle. And it's not just any bike. It's the exact same bike that I got. Now, I just want to tell you guys, for the next four years, Jeremy Tucker and I had a time on our bicycle. I mean, I will tell you, it was an exhilarating, adventurous experience. I mean, we rode uptown and downtown and out of town. I remember we, we rode down Suicide Hill. I mean, and there were, there were stories that were told about kids who tried to ride down Suicide Hill and didn't live to tell about it. We rode down Ski Slope Hill, all right, which if you didn't immediately turn after you got to the bottom, you would spill into the Coosa River. We rode around Pinecrest Dirt Hill. We did all these things. I mean, friendships were won and lost as we rode on our bicycles, all right? And, and uh, lots of things happened on that bicycle. But I want to tell you this, that after about four years, the excitement about that bike kind of waned. And I started getting enamored and exhilarated and awed by other things. Football came into the picture, basketball, friendships, good grades, and even girls. Something I never would have guessed uh, at Christmas Day when I was 10. All right, I want to tell you something. That there are two principles that my experience with Christmas and my experience with the bicycle is true about every single person. If you're taking notes, I'd like you to write them down, all right? The first principle is this, is that the human race craves the experience of exhilaration. The human race craves the experience of exhilaration. We want our breath taken away from us, do we not? We want to be awed. We want to experience transcendence. We all have that inside of us. And, and, and the thing is, is we often look for that kind of thing during the week of Christmas. We look for that kind of thing when we take exotic vacations. We, we look for it in relationships and in marriages and in the way we express our sexuality. We, we look for it in accomplishments at our work. We look for it in cars that we buy and cars that we remodel. We look for it in different projects that we undertake. We look for this awe, this sense of excitement, this sense of wonder. It's built into all of us. It's natural. It's God-given. And that leads me to the second principle. And I want you to write this one down too. No experience can sustain exhilaration. No experience can sustain exhilaration except beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. We have an innate tendency to get bored with the things and the people and the pursuits and the activities that once thrilled us. 
We do. I mean, everybody could kind of step up on the stage and give testimony after testimony about how we thought that this thing or this person or this job was going to be the end-all, be-all in our lives, but come to find out it wasn't. She wasn't. He wasn't. It wasn't. All right? Because this is why, y'all, you and I were not made for bicycles. We were made to behold the God who makes bicycles a reality, who makes jobs a reality, who makes marriages a reality. And when we set our affections and our exhilaration and our awe simply on that thing or that person, we find ourselves over time feeling empty and needing to go to something else. C.S. Lewis made this telling confession. Listen to this. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. John Piper says this, the tragedy of the world is that the echo, the echo is mistaken for the original shout. When our back is to the breathtaking beauty of God, we cast a shadow on the earth and fall in love with it. But it doesn't satisfy Y'all tracking with me? You understand? So what I want to do is I want to preach John 1, 14 to 18 in what I would consider an efficient way, but in a way that is going to expose to us the glory of Jesus Christ, which is the only sustainable, which is the only effective, and is the only right kind of exhilaration and amazement and awe that you and I should feel during Christmas and for the entirety of our lives. Okay, so if you're taking notes, I want you to write down these are four truths about Jesus Christ that, that should thrill your heart this Christmas and for the entirety of your life. The title of the message is The Thrill of Christmas. The Thrill of Christmas. And I'm just going to give them to you right away. You might not get every single part of it, but I don't want you guessing. The four truths about Jesus are this, is that he's God. He became a man for us. He revealed his glory to us. He bestowed his grace upon us. He's God. He became a man for us. He revealed his glory to us. He bestowed his grace upon us. That sounds awfully simple. Sounds like something that, well, okay, that's great. But I think that if we examine it, we're going to be in awe this morning if we have hearts to hear, eyes to see. So the very first one, he's God. Now, the launching point for this first truth about Jesus comes from this first term that we find in verse 14, the Word. The Word. Because if you're in Bible study mode, you have to ask the question, what does this mean? And who is it referring to? All right? And so, the Word, which most of you are already familiar with, is the Greek word lagos. It means an expression, a statement, an idea, a message. All right, and, and, and also a word, which is why it's translated the word. All right, what we find in verses 14 to 18 is that this word is the outward expression of a spiritual reality. It's the message and self-expression of God himself. What 14 to 18 is telling us is that when we hear the word, we're hearing God. When we see the word, we're seeing God. When we experience the word, we're experiencing God himself. And so what we really need to do is ask the question, who is this? And what do we know about this word? So take your Bibles, if you've got them, 
And I want you to look up at verses 1 through 5. Look up at verses 1 through 5, and I'm going to ask for your involvement after I read this, this text. I'm going to ask for your involvement. I want you, to, I want you to answer the question, what does this passage say about the Word? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. What does this passage say about the Word? He's God. He's eternal. He was there at creation. He created. He's a person. In Him is life. He does. He overcomes darkness. Yes, he was. He was rejected. He's not understood. Good. Excellent. So in it we see his eternal nature. We see his identity as God, but we also see his union with God. I mean, this is a fundamental passage of where we get or understand the doctrine of the Trinity. That this word is God, but at the same time he has fellowship with God. How can that be? Because there are multiple persons within the Godhead. All right? This passage right here, verses 1 through 5, is a summation of what the entire Bible has to say about the deity of Jesus Christ. It's just like John just packs it all into five verses. And, and, and what I want to, I just want to show you right now, I want to tell you about, is that, is that how the Bible actually describes Jesus as God. The Bible uses um, names to describe Jesus as God. Let's just listen to these. You don't have to turn in these passages. But in 1 John, John actually says that Jesus is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and, and it's repeated in Matthew 1, we were reading it earlier, says that, that uh, Jesus is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 says that his name will be Wonderful, Counselor. Does anybody know what comes after Counselor? Mighty God, mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father, all right? Acts 10, verse 36, Peter is preaching to Cornelius and his household, and he says about Jesus that he is Lord of all. And then in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 8, Paul actually calls Jesus the Lord of glory. Listen, y'all, Lord of glory, Lord of all. Everlasting Father, Mighty God, True God, Eternal Life. Does those sound like names to you that would indicate that He is God? Does it? Yeah. All right. Now, not only do His names describe uh, Jesus as God, but there are also attributes in the Scriptures that describe Him as God. If you're writing these down, these are just really, there's a really mirror. They reflect what 1 to, 1 to 5 actually tell us, but He's eternal. Jesus said in John 8, 58, before Abraham was, what did He say? I am. And in that, he's not saying simply that I preceded Abraham. He's saying that I am who I am. 
I am the one who is eternally existent, eternally present. I've always been, and I'm always here. Only God is eternal, and Jesus is eternal. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. He's omniscient. You guys remember, we've quoted a lot recently since we've been in 1 Peter, but in, in John chapter 21, uh, Peter is having a conversation with Jesus at, on the, by the sea, and he's asking Peter questions, and finally Peter says, why are you asking me all these questions? Lord, you know what? All things. There is nothing that Jesus does not know. He knows all things in reality. He knows all things potential. There is nothing that escapes his knowledge. He is omniscient. And only God is omniscient. Not only is he omniscient, he's omnipresent. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 20, he says, Where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be as well. All right? My presence is here. It doesn't matter whether there are two or three gathered in a building in Oxford, Alabama, or two or three gathered in South America, or out in Liberia, or wherever. Wherever people are gathered, Jesus is there. He is omnipresent, and only God can be omnipresent. He's omnipotent. He says in Matthew 28, All authority has been given unto me. How much authority? All authority. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is talking about Jesus, and he says that Jesus has the power to subdue all things to himself. It's like R.C. Sproul said, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. Jesus rules over them all. And then he is immutable. That's a theological word that says he's never changing. The essence of Jesus' character and his nature never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8 says. These are, these are attributes that only God possesses and Jesus has them. And then I just want to tell you the actions that Jesus displays are the actions that God displays. All right? I think it was uh, Mike and Mark pointed out that Jesus, the Word, is the Creator. All right? In Colossians 1, verse 16, it says, By Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. Whether there are things invisible, whether things visible, whether thrones or dominions or powers or principalities, all things were made by Him and all things were made for Him. He created everything. He's God because only God can do that. But not only do you have creation, you also have redemption. Ephesians 1.7 says that Jesus, that in Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Guys, do y'all realize that in Christ, he has redeemed us out of darkness into light, what John 1 talks about. Out of death into life, all right? Out of depravity into holiness. Only God can do something like that. And Jesus is the one who has done it. And then you have things like resurrection. I mean, not only did he create us, not only did he redeem us, but he himself authored resurrection. You know, even, even Lazarus. And he says, Lazarus, come forth, and a dead man becomes alive again. But in, in John, he also says, listen, if you destroy this temple in three days, I will rebuild it. All right? I have power to take my life. I have power to raise it up again. And so, guys, this is what I want you to see in this first, this first truth. All right? Is that when you hear the name of Jesus, Jesus, I don't know what all you think about, but one of the things that you must think about is that this one is God, very God. He is the true and eternal 
God of the universe. If you were to go to Oxford Lake, well, if you went this afternoon, you wouldn't probably see anybody. But if you go some other time this week, and if you ask the question, who is Jesus Christ? You're going to get two basic answers. The first answer is, well, I don't really know. The second answer you're going to get is, well, he, he died on the cross. Okay? He did. He died on the cross. But if that's all you and I know about Jesus Christ, we have a one-dimensional view of who he is, and we cannot understand or fathom or appreciate or be in awe or thrilled about him until we know who he is and all that he's done. First, he's God. Okay, the second one, he's, he became a man for us. He became a man for us. I mean, grab a sip of water. All right. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is, this is what we uh, have called the incarnation. Now, when I was a kid, I always heard the word incarnation. I never knew what it meant. We didn't have websites and we didn't have thesaurus.com or dictionary.com and I didn't really look at dictionaries very often, so I went years not knowing what incarnation meant, all right? And so it comes from a Latin word, incarnatio, which means to take on flesh. To take on flesh. That's, that's all that the incarnation, the word incarnation means, all right? Now, the Westminster Shorter Catechism actually asked the question, what is the incarnation? And this is the answer. It's pretty detailed, but just listen. Just follow it. Don't try to take notes on it. The incarnation is the act whereby the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, without ceasing to be what He is, God the Son, took into union with Himself what He before that act did not possess, a human nature. And so He was and continues to be God and man in two distinct natures and one person forever. So if you ask the question, is Jesus God or man? The answer is yes, he is. He is both God and man because he came to earth and took on. He incarnated himself. He became flesh. Now, what else does it say, though? Not only did he become flesh, he dwelt among us. Right, he dwelt among us. This, this uh, verb, dwelt among us, could literally be translated, he pitched his tent with us. It's the, it's the word that would describe tabernacled. It's a verbal form of tabernacle. All right, so he made his tent to dwell with us. This is really an amazing thing to think about, right? All right, it's a powerful image of what Jesus actually did. The eternal Son of God who existed in, in pre-incarnate glory, in eternity past glory, comes to earth and pitches his tent to live with us, to live as us, and to live for us. That is an amazing thought. That's why in Matthew 1, verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us, because he is with us. He is tabernacled with us. Now, I want to get right to the point here as we contemplate why this is significant. What, what does Jesus' incarnation mean? Signify. What does it mean to you and I? If you're taking notes, you can write this one down. It means that God is for you. God is for you. All right. 
the birth of the Son of God demonstrates and proclaims that God is on our side. He's committed Himself to the cause of our salvation. Right? In the birth of the long-awaited Savior, in His death on the cross, in His resurrection from the dead, it is the demonstration, it is the proof, it is the guarantee that God says, I'm not going to leave you guys alone. I'm not going to leave you in your sin. I'm not going to leave you in your depravity. I'm not going to leave you going to hell. I'm going to send my son. I'm going to show you that I love you, that I'm for you. I'm not against you. I don't hate you, but I have compassion on you. Here you go. I'm going to prove it to you by sending him to you. All right? So it means that he is for us, not against us, and it means that he's with us. All right. That's the second truth that I think that we really need to see is that God doesn't stand afar off from this world and say, wow, I hate what they've got themselves into. I wish Adam and Eve would never have eaten that forbidden fruit. But now that they've done it, I just got to let things play out and just see how things go, because, well, I'm God. I have an eternal, immutable um, nature about myself. I don't need to get stained. I don't need to get around those people. Let's just see if they can figure it out. That's not the attitude they took. He says, no, I'm actually going to come and rescue them because I'm, I'm the only one who can. And so he comes and rescues us. Alistair McGrath has written a book on Jesus. And I just was amazed by this uh, couple sentences. Listen to what he says. He says, we aren't talking about God becoming like man, just as if he was putting on some sort of disguise so that he could be passed off as a man. We are talking about the God who created the world entering into that same world as man in order to redeem him. God has not sent a messenger or a representative to help the poor creatures that we are. He has involved himself directly, redeeming his own creation instead of getting someone else to do it for him. Listen, every major religion in the world has a prophet that leads people to God. Christianity is the only religion where God comes to man. I remember watching an interview with David Platt, the pastor over there in uh, Brook Hills in Birmingham. And he was over, overseas somewhere. I want to think that it was India. And he was having a conversation. If I recall correctly, it was a, a Hindu leader, a Buddhist leader, and an Islamic leader. And they were all kind of huddled up, and they were just talking. And I believe it was the Hindu leader who said, I like to think of our religions in this way that God is up on top of a mountain and we are at the bottom of the mountain and you are on one side and we are on another side and another religion is on another side and we all have our own particular ways to climb up the mountain in order to get to God. And though they are different routes, at the end of the day, we all get to God. And it sounded really profound. But David Platt said, I respectfully disagree because Christianity is the only religion where God says, I'm getting off of my throne and I'm coming down on this mountain to come to you and to redeem you and to save you from your sins. So this is who our God is. He has tabernacled with us. He's for us and he is with us. Number three, he revealed his glory to us. Look there toward the end of verse 14. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of of grace and truth. Now I want to give you just a little history lesson on the manifestation of God's glory in the tabernacle. All right? In Exodus chapter 40, Moses and the Israelites have constructed the tabernacle. 
And as soon as it is finished, Moses would like to enter. But the glory of God fills the tabernacle. And it is so resplendent, it is so visible, it is so manifestly beautiful but intimidating all at the same time that Moses is unable to enter into it. Fast forward a few hundred years, and in 1 Kings chapter 8, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, I think gives you the same account. Solomon has built the permanent tabernacle, the permanent temple. And once they finish, Solomon actually prays a, a prayer of commitment of worship unto God. And as soon as he finishes the prayer of worship unto God, the priests would like to go into the temple. The, Solomon, I'm sure, would want to go into the temple, but they can't because the glory of God fills the temple such that it is so amazing they cannot enter into it. You fast forward probably two or three hundred more years or so, and the priests and the kings and the servants of God have become so sinful and so idolatrous that what has happened is God says, I'm going to remove my glory from the temple. I'm going to take it away and it's going to be ushered back into heaven. And about that time, Ezekiel gets a vision of the glory of God. It's like he's ushered into the very throne room of heaven. All right, And he sees the glory of God in the heavenly temple, and it was filled with brightness, it was filled with lights, it was filled with gems, it was filled with crystals. It was an amazing sight to behold. And interestingly, in Revelation chapter 15, John is privy to the same exact vision of this resplendent glory of God, and it is so amazing. And it changes Ezekiel, it changes John, it changes Isaiah when he saw it in chapter 6, it changed Moses when he saw it as well. And I just want to, just one lesson here. Whenever people have come face to face with a manifest presentation of the glory of God, it changes them forever. So, the glory of God is undefinable. It's like trying to define the word beauty. You know what beauty is when you see it, but it's not like you can actually give a concrete definition of it. We have called it over and over at Redeemer Church, the glory of God is the, is the beauty and excellence of, the, of His nature. All right, the beauty and excellence of His nature. Piper calls it the infinite beauty and greatness of His manifold perfections. But the point is this. The point is, God's glory has inhabited tabernacles and temples and throne rooms. And we get visions of that from Exodus all the way into Revelation. But God's glory is most manifestly present. And it is most glorious in His Son, Jesus Christ, when He came and tabernacled with us. The point of John 1, 1 to 18, is that Jesus is a tabernacle. And that the glory of God is filling Jesus Christ. And he shows the glory of God to the people around him where they can behold the manifest beauty and excellence of God himself. That is the teaching of John 1, 14 to 18. If you look down at your text, John 1, verse 4, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness. And then verse 8 says, he was uh, talking about John, says he was not that light, 
but he was sent to bear witness of that light. Verse 9 says, that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. That light is a representation of the glory of God, and Jesus is that glory. So, I have a question for you. It's another Bible study question. But if we ask the question, what is the content of the glory of Jesus Christ, as we see it in John 1? Can we answer that question? What is the content of the glory of Christ? Yes, grace and truth. It's not all about bright lights and angel wings or halos over his head or some emanating radiation that's coming from his body, all right? It is grace and it's truth. And it is the fullest expression of the glory of God Take your Bibles, put, put a finger in John 1, and go back to Exodus 33. So Moses, in verse 18, begs God. And he says, God, please... Show me your, what? Glory. And the Lord replies, and he says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. So, so Moses asks for glory, and God immediately promises what? Goodness. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. And so God reveals to Moses that his glory is supremely his goodness. Now look over at, ch at chapter 34, verses 5 to 7. It says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children to the third and fourth generation. What, what we need to see here is that when we think of glory, we don't need to think that, well, God showed himself really glorious in these physical manifestations and he showed himself that way because that's the best way. But now in Jesus, we kind of have a lower form of glory. What we need to see is that when glory was requested, Jesus, uh, God reveals goodness and truth. He reveals mercy and grace. And he does so in a way that he expresses it to Moses verbally. But now Jesus Christ comes and is expressed to us physically. It is expressed to us in a ministerial way. He shows us his glory by the way that he lives his life. Turn back to John chapter 1. If you're taking notes, I want you to write down just a couple definitions here, grace and truth. Grace is God's richest blessings freely bestowed on sinners that don't deserve it. It is God's richest blessings freely bestowed on sinners who don't deserve it. 
And truth is that which is consistent with the mind and will and character of God. That's what truth is. And what we have a tendency to do is we have a tendency to separate grace from truth. And we say things like, well, he's awfully gracious, he's full of grace, but he needs to work on the truth end of it. And then we look at other people and say, well, boy, he can really speak the truth, or she's really truthful, but she really lacks grace. Right? We all understand what we mean when we make statements like that. But John chapter 1 would tell us you can't divorce one from the other. Jesus came full of grace and truth, and that is the essence of his glory. That he, that he was merciful to those who needed mercy. He offered forgiveness to those who needed forgiveness. But at the very same time, he spoke the truth. He embodied the truth. I mean, listen, he told the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he said, listen, yeah, the, the, you've had five husbands, and the man that you're with now is not your husband. All right? That was truthful. All right? But then he says, listen, if you partake of me, I am a fountain of living water, and you will never thirst again. And that is offering the grace of God to someone who certainly did not deserve it. And you see that over and over and over again, even in the Gospel of John. He embodies grace and truth, and this is a manifestation of the very glory of God. And so what we need to do is stand in awe of the embodiment of the glory of God as grace and truth. Let me give you the final one. He bestowed grace on us. He bestowed grace upon us. Verse 16 starts out, it says, And of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think the one thing that I want, to, I want you to see here is the superiority of the grace that comes in Jesus Christ. Um, I think I read about five different English translations, and the, um, the overwhelming majority of English translations say grace upon grace, or grace built on top of grace. And that's a good concept, because in Christ we get grace, and we get more grace, and we get more grace, and when we need it, we're always getting grace, and we can never out the grace of God, you know, I mean, we can say a lot of things about the awesome, abounding nature of the grace of God. But, but what John is actually getting to here is he's actually saying grace in place of grace or grace instead of grace. Because in Exodus, when, when God distributed the, the law to Moses and the Israelites, all right, that law was an expression of grace. It displayed the the essence of God, the holiness of God, the, the wonderful attributes of God. And he's saying, listen, I've redeemed you out of the land of Egypt. I've brought you through the Red Sea. I have redeemed your lives from the pit. And now you can live unto me. You can live like me and you can honor me for who I am. It was a law of grace, so to speak. But what John is saying is that now Jesus has entered the picture. The grace that comes in, in Jesus replaces and is better than and is superior to the grace that was found at Mount Sinai in the law of God. He said, this is a grace where I'm not coming and giving you more laws. I'm not, giving to show, I'm not showing you uh, anymore that you can't complete the law. I'm showing you that there is one who is going to fulfill the law. 
There is one who has perfect righteousness. And then if you just merely, simply believe in him and put your faith in him, you no longer have to be bound underneath the law, but you're liberated from it. And if you put your trust and faith in him, you have forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, and you have, you'll get to experience glory forever and ever. Listen to Galatians 4, verses 4 to 6. I'll read this passage to you. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Listen, y'all, as we have Christmas this week, and we think about being awed, experiencing some sort of euphoria, excitement, exhilaration in the, in the expression of our Christmas gatherings. This is what I don't want to do. I do not want to, to uh, diminish fun for children. I don't want to take away any euphoria that families experience. I don't want that at all. I just want us to experience Christmas in the best, most glorious most sweetest way possible. And to do that, we have to understand that Jesus is God, that he became a man for us, that he revealed his glory to us, and that he's poured his grace out into us so that we can now cry out to God, Abba, Father. You understand that? You, you, you capture that? We were made to be thrilled. We were made to be in awe. We were made to be exhilarated. And I will tell you, um, if your kids get a bicycle or if you get a new car, be excited about it. Have exhilaration, but only do so because in some small way it is a reflection of the glory of Jesus Christ who has come and lived and died and bled and resurrected on your behalf. Amen?